Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Director Joanna Lipper eloquently explores past and present as she tells a remarkable story of Hassat Abiola, daughter of the human rights heroine Kudirat Abiola, and Nigeria's president-elect MKO Abiola, who won an historic vote in 1993 that promised to end years of military dictatorship. Shortly after the election, MKO's Abiola's victory was annulled, and he was arrested. While he was in prison, his wife, Kriyat, took over leadership of the pro-democracy movement, organizing strikes and rallies, winning international attention for Nigerian struggle against human rights violations perpetrated by the military dictatorship. Because of her work, she was soon became a target and was assassinated in 1996. In this riveting political thriller, the Abiola family's intimate story unfolds against an epic backdrop of Nigerians' evolution from independence in 1960 through the Biafra War and subsequent military dictatorships. We are joined today by the director of a wonderful documentary about the Abiola family and Nigeria, The Supreme Price. Director Joanna Lipper joins us today here on Film School. Joanna, welcome to Film School. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Um, I uh, I know a little bit about Nigeria over the years. I know a little bit about the broad outlines of the political um, struggles that have that have been in place for quite some time. Uh, the the struggle for democracy, but I wasn't really aware of the people as much uh, until I had the uh, privilege of seeing uh, the Supreme Price. Tell me a little bit about uh, your involvement uh, with the Aviola family and what prompted you to make this documentary, The Supreme Price. Hafsat Abiola and I were undergraduates at Harvard at the same time, but we didn't meet until several years after graduation. Um, after the death of her mother, uh, Hafsat began to found her own nonprofit called Kudarat Initiative for Democracy. She began uh, founding that organization in exile in the United States because the military dictatorship was still in power in Nigeria and it wasn't yet safe for her to return. Um, so after her father's death in 1999, um, she was able to return to Nigeria. So the time that she returned to Nigeria was at exactly the point of transition from military dictatorship to civilian rule, because her father tragically died in prison mysteriously on the eve of that transition, mm. um, shortly before he was due to be released from prison. So uh, I met Hafsat shortly after that period of time when she was visiting the U.S., trying to raise awareness of the efforts of her fledgling NGO in Nigeria, she had gone back and done a needs assessment, and she had determined that the area that needed the most attention in Nigeria and the population that was the most vulnerable in the wake of this transition from military dictatorship to civilian rule um, was this population of women across Nigeria. Mm -hmm. So she uh, took her mother's legacy of democracy uh, and women's empowerment and tried to perpetuate it through this nonprofit organization, which focuses on leadership training for women and girls in Nigeria. Let, let's uh, back up just a little bit and, and describe the Abiola family, um, the, sort of the roots of them, uh, particularly MKO. And uh, uh, he was a Muslim uh, and had four wives. But 
came from a, a kind of a poor background, if uh, or not a not a wealthy background, right? Yeah. So MKO Abiola grew up in a poor family. Um, his family faced a lot of adversity, mm. and he got a scholarship um, to go to university. Uh, I think in the UK mm. and was able to get an education and then came back and rose in business. Um, he was um, in the telecommunications business mm-hmm. and became part owner of uh, a company called ITT and was um, very involved in bringing various forms of telecommunications uh, to Nigeria. Right. And in the process amassed a significant wealth which he seemed to be very much a part of sharing with his with the people of Nigeria. He seemed to be a very benevolent man. Um, is that a, would that be a fair characterization of him? In the film, his children describe how he built churches, he built mosques, yeah. he built schools, he supported really a, a, hu- a huge number of individuals, both in terms of their medical bills, their children's educations. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was a generous man with his fortune. Um, he was also, you know, strategically, once he started to run for president, you know, focused on getting support across a very uh, broad and diverse um, territory uh, of Nigeria. So throughout many different regions um, and ethnic groups, he was uh, running for president and um, during that campaign, really trying to get the allegiance of a diverse voter base successful with that. Yeah, he seemed to be a transformative political figure um, in in the history of Nigeria. Just for one sort of sidebar here, and that is uh, Nigeria. Let's it is on the western part of of Africa, sort of that that part where it sort of turns in. And becomes uh, there's that section of Africa. It's near Liberia and Sierra Leone. Am I in and that? near Ghana? And Ghana, it is a large nation. Uh, I think we forget how large the continent of Africa is, but Nigeria itself is the fourth largest country in Africa, a population of close to 165 million people. So this is not a this is a very significant country in terms of Africa and in, really in the world because of one particular resource. And I think we just to sort of give a backdrop to Nigeria and its political kind of culture. Talk to us a little bit about the importance of oil in and how the military factors into that as well. In Nigeria, the nation's entire oil revenue is controlled by a small cabal of elites in political office. And um, basically, the revenue is really dominated by this very small group while the masses remain impoverished. And so um, the question really becomes one about corruption and the link between, you know, corruption and the lack of infrastructure in certain areas uh, in Nigeria. For example, like in the power sector, like with the electric grid, you know, every day in Nigeria there are blackouts um, across the country for different periods of time. Uh, that affects the economy on a number of levels, and that can be traced back in part to corruption. So. Basically, Nigeria does not have a diversified economy. It has an economy that's driven solely by oil. 
the actual oil sector, I think, employs definitely you know less than 10% of the population, I think around 5% of the population. And so the question is, how do you diversify mm-hmm. the economy in order for that to happen? Businesses and investment has to come in in a variety of sectors that would offer a variety of jobs. And in order for that to happen, there has to be, for example, a steady power supply mm-hmm. so that if a factory is manufacturing, they can rely on the power supply to be consistent. Mm-hmm. So there's just, you know, corruption has a lot of different uh, effects that reverberate, you know, throughout the political system. Um, the question of oil and kind of activism around oil really dates back um, to the very to independence to 1960, where mm-hmm. there began to be lots of conflicts around that, just internally in Nigeria. And one of the things that Kudarat Abiola did was that she organized the oil workers' union strike, and that struck at the heart of the military dictatorship's operations because she was throughout the film using media, the television, the radio, using all these platforms to be very vocal about the extensive corruption that she was witnessing um, and basically saying that you know, the U.S. and other foreign nations should embargo Nigerian oil and calling for sanctions against the Nigerian military dictatorship. So the way that she then reacted was to get the oil workers to go on strike. So there were different forms of activism that are portrayed in the film that center around oil and this issue of corruption. Right. Now, Kodiot's involvement uh, in politics came after MKO, her husband, uh, was arrested. And so that that spurred her to, uh, well, actually, even beforehand, she was very much a part of his political campaign for president and actually seemed to be sort of a galvanizing figure of sorts in that that campaign uh, to win election. And when MKO won, it was a resounding victory. But eventually it seemed that the military stepped in and annulled the election and basically arrested him. And then we see the, in the film, we see the activism of uh, Kudarat uh, begin to, to, to flourish. Um, before we go any further, I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with uh, Joanna Lipper. She is the director of the documentary The Supreme Price. The film is uh, playing around the country. You can go to the website, joannalipper.com, and then go there and you can find out uh, about the film and where it's screening around the country. And also the, the supremeprice.com okay. is another place where all the upcoming screenings are listed. And also we have uh, platforms on Twitter and Facebook that are regularly updated. The next screening on the West Coast is going to actually be at the United Nations Association Film Festival in Palo Alto. Fantastic. Okay. Well, then um, go to uh, the supremeprice.com. Yeah. Okay. And, and especially, like, if you want to say something about the Facebook and Twitter is really a place where yeah. these dialogues are opening up about the film that are international, like both from the Nigerian, because the film the film is playing on five continents this fall. So on the social media platforms, you know, Twitter and Facebook, we're getting reactions internationally from viewers who see the film, including many in Nigeria. I was going to ask you uh, about that, uh, the, uh, the, whether or not it is played in Nigeria, and it sounds like it has. Yeah, the, uh, Nigerian premier, the Nigerian premiere of the Supreme Price was on September 27th in Lagos mm-hmm. at the Lights Camera Africa Film Festival. Uh, that's a film festival that's put on by uh, Barry Enterprising 
and talented woman named Ugoma Adioki and her organization, The Lifehouse. The premiere was also presented in association with IREP, which is a documentary institute and film festival in Nigeria that's dedicated to promoting social impact documentary across the country. And we're going to be continuing to work with both of these organizations on the distribution of the film in Nigeria at schools, at cultural festivals, in political conferences, sorts of different places where the film can have an impact. Well, well fantastic. Well, we've, we've, I just want to, as we move forward and, and, and talk about sort of the Abiola family, I think we, we've talked about MKO and Guriat. Uh, let, let's talk about uh, Hafsad. Uh, she is a remarkable person um, for the courage that it took for her to essentially go back to Nigeria and really begin the, the heavy lifting of getting uh, consent, getting people organized in a way to challenge what, what had happened and, and, and really carry on the legacy of her, her parents. Talk, talk to us a little bit about her as a person, uh, Hafsad. What impressed me most when I first met Hafsa was her resilience. She suffered an unspeakable tragedy of the loss of both her parents at a very young age under terrible circumstances, and yet very shortly after this was able to channel her rage and her mourning into something constructive, Mm -hmm. which was activism. And she was able to be persistent in the face of tremendous obstacles in Nigeria, both in terms of what's possible for women to achieve, and also in terms of the struggle to change a system of entrenched corruption. So it was really her integrity and her determination and her stamina that impressed me. But also, in terms of, in a film, I feel like people, you know, have to connect across cultures. They have to connect in many ways to a lead character. And I I felt like what she demonstrated in the face of tragedy is something that we can all learn from because everyone faces the loss of a loved one at some point in their life and I think the way that she came through all of that and kept going without being deterred is something that we can all learn from it's a calling upon inner resources and also refusing to be demoralized in the face of injustice I think that's something that the film speaks to in a very profound way I couldn't agree more. I, I found her to be just uh, such a self-possessed person and, and, and in a very quiet way, um, uh, a very strong presence. Particularly, I was impressed with uh, hearing her, her speak. There was a, there's a scene in the film of, uh, at a conference table talking to different women who are involved in a, a lot of different work being, uh, being done in Nigeria. And just, uh, you know, the ability of, of them to understand, first of all, to have a profound understanding of what they're up against in, in a society where women have not been valued and who do, it seems, do a tremendous amount of the actual work that is that in, in, uh, in Nigeria and yet find very little, if any, resources to draw upon. I, I just, one of the things I've been struck by uh, um, over the years, I've seen documentaries on a number of movements in Sierra Leone, Liberia, and other places. And women seem to be almost always in the forefront of real uh, systemic change, real cultural change. Is there something uh, about, the, uh, I don't want to generalize too much, but it's something about women in these circumstances, particularly in, it seems, in West Africa, where they seem to be in an in increasing 
role of leadership in these countries? Well, I think in particular, we can talk about two films, Pray the Devil Back to Hell yeah. and Iron Ladies of Liberia. Yes, yes. I think two. when you look at Lima Gaboe and you look at Alan Johnson Sirleaf in Liberia and the two documentaries that were made about them and the movement that they were at the forefront of, you can see the ways in which in Liberia, where there had been so much injustice and so much violence, um, there was just a need for a new kind of leadership. And it was unquestionable. And the women really came to the forefront. And in those films, you see the way in which, for example, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf leads through negotiation. Yeah. She listens to all the voices that are coming to her to air grievances and tries to find a balance between them. One of my favorite scenes in Iron Ladies of Liberia um, occurs when some of the former uh, military come to ask for their bonuses. And, you know, she's trying to say, you know, you destroyed people's homes. You did all these terrible, unspeakable things. And we understand you want your bonuses, but I also have to account for the people that were victims of all of this. And she doesn't say, you know, go away and don't come back. She tries to understand what they're saying yeah. and negotiate with them so that they feel seen and heard and respected. And yet she also stands her ground. And so I think um, this question of, you know, autocratic rule versus a form of rule that allows for a multiplicity of voices is a question. I think in the film, there are men who actually talk about the legacy of leadership in Nigeria. And they say, you know, we've had men over the years, you know, nothing has come of it. Let us try the women too. I think it's just more of a question of this gigantic base of talent and resources that every country has. And so if you are marginalizing that population and depriving them of political office and uh, access to the power to legislate and to distribute resources, you're not counting a huge resource that you have, and it's very connected to what Nicholas Kristof writes about in Half yeah. the Sky. Um, just this question of um, the economic force and power of women, the untapped potentials uh, in these countries where women are oppressed, it's just a loss to everyone. And it's not only a style of rule, because you can't generalize each person as an individual some women are going to be great rulers. Some women are going to be corrupt. Some women are going to be mm -hmm. not very good at, uh, when it comes to leadership. So you can't generalize based on gender about the potential of someone as a ruler, but you can generalize about the idea that there should be more equality when it comes to gender and political representation. And especially in a country like Nigeria, where you know, the men and women live in separate spheres in a lot of ways, especially in public life. So for a woman to meet with a man that's not a relative um, for a political purpose, for example, you know, without a chaperone, that's not something that many areas of Nigerian culture and society would think is correct. So the absence of women actually has a serious impact in politics because these women should have a woman that they can go to in a political seat of power to talk to because that's culturally acceptable. So you're actually silencing women by not having women in these seats of power and leadership that other women who are their constituents can talk to. So it just goes beyond the obvious of, oh, there's an inequality in terms of who's in power. It's There's also a culture and a structure and a tradition that makes it even more essential in a place like Nigeria for women to be able to access other women in political seats of power. I also think, um, you know, 
as a filmmaker visually throughout the film, I'm trying to also illuminate the population of women who are silent, the population of women who are seen throughout the film in different areas of Nigeria um, that Hafsat travels through. Um, and so the film, on the one hand, is about these two heroines you know, of the pro-democracy movement, Kudarat and Hafsat Abiola, but it's also about the women that they're working with, you know, like Dr. Joe Okeode, who's a human rights activist, and then the women at KIND, but then again also about the women who don't have a voice, who they're trying to reach and involve and engage through voter education rallies, through all kinds of different leadership training to, to kind of promote a solidarity amongst women that transcends class, that transcends religious difference, that transcends ethnic difference. You know, Nigeria is a place where there are tremendous uh, amounts of diversity in every, you know, area of the country. And so the question is, can this women's movement transcend those differences and unite women? Well, I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with uh, Joanna Lipper. She is the director of the film, The Supreme Price. What What's Hafsad up to right now? In The Supreme Price, we trace Hafsad Abiola's journey from the time she was a young child growing up in a polygamous compound in Lagos with her parents through the time she went to boarding school and then university in the United States, and then through the time that she returns to Nigeria from exile when the military dictatorship transitions to civilian rule. Um, throughout the film, we see her as a human rights activist, as a social entrepreneur, and then towards the end of the film, she gets a political appointment. Um, the governor of Ogun State appoints her as the special advisor to the governor of Ogun State on the Millennium Development Goals. So her focus is really on allocating resources to fight poverty in Ogun State with a specific focus on youth, uh, children, and women. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's what she's been doing now. She's been working uh, in politics in Nigeria in an appointed position. So in Nigeria, there are mandatory minimum quotas for gender balance, uh, for example, in state government, but most of those are filled through appointed positions, not through elected positions. Mm -hmm. So the next step really is for her to run for an elected office and to get on an actual ticket. Um, there are elections in 2015. I don't think she's going to run in those, but um, I think the hope is that she'll run possibly in four years' time. Mm -hmm. Well, she is again. She's just such a dynamic person in in a very quiet, reserved way. She, but the the fire burns bright in her. You can tell that she uh, is surely dedicated uh, and has made this, um, you know, her life's work. Uh, and it's a just very compelling person. Just a very compelling person to listen to and to kind of watch her uh, as she interacts with other people. In the film, we see a lot of uh, footage um, of, of MKO's run for president, Kudarat's uh, involvement uh, in 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 the in the politics of that. Uh, where did tell us a little bit about how you got a hold of this footage? So, at the beginning of the process of looking for archival footage, I was looking in established archives across the globe. Um, a lot of it, you know, came from places that you know we all 
you know, know of, such as Thought Equity or Ina in France, um, a lot of different uh, national archives, the BBC, um, CNN had some footage, Reuters had footage. So that was the first place that I went to look for footage. Um, and then there was the question of censorship during the military dictatorship and looking at um, footage that was smuggled out of the country that documented human rights violations as they were occurring. So places like Witness, an organization founded by Peter Gabriel, mm-hmm. had some incredible footage of interaction between the civilian population and the military uh, during the time of Abacha's dictatorship. So that was um, very powerful footage that we were able to get. And then there was actually footage by private videographers that the Abiola family um, had employed during the campaign to document every aspect of the campaign in all the different regions of Nigeria. And that footage came to us later through one source, um, and he had kept the VHS tapes in his house in a box. They weren't logged. They weren't labeled. Um, they hadn't been documented by anyone yet. So this was really a treasure trove that came to me towards the end of the editing process that allowed me to look at the private personas of Kudarat and MKO Abiola, because this footage wasn't just their speeches. It wasn't just them in huge motorcades, although it included that. It was also private contemplative moments Mm -hmm. between events and between things where they really weren't even aware they were being filmed uh, that were captured. So it just seems like this videographer kept the camera running um, for hours and hours on end every day. And so um, in addition to being Mm -hmm. this amazing portrait of these two individuals um, who are no longer with us, this footage was also really... um, a window into parts of Nigeria at that time, like, for example, in northern Nigeria, Maiduguri, places where the campaign uh, went, where Abiola had a very uh, warm reception by the masses who were Mm -hmm. very eager to be able to elect a president instead of having the military dictate who the next leader would be. So you see that wild enthusiasm of the crowd, that hope um, and that mobilization and that almost unity that you see – around this idea of a democratically elected president. Now, of course, all of that energy and hope um, ended up not coming to fruition when the election of 1993 was annulled abruptly after Abiola's victory. So you get a sense of the incredible highs and also the terrible lows, mm-hmm. not only experienced by Abiola, whose you know triumph was brutally crushed, um, and, you know, who was deprived of the presidency, but of all the people who were believing that Nigeria could take a turn towards a new future, uh, only to be disappointed. Let me ask you that had Hafsat, uh, had she seen uh, this footage? If she hadn't, what was, did you know what her reaction was when she, or were you? So I think a lot of footage in the film Hafsat had not seen before, and um, I think not just for Hafsa, but for her siblings as yeah, well. It was yeah. a powerful experience to um, be able to see their beloved parents, who they remembered very vividly, brought back to life in this way. And Hafsa was at Harvard um, as an undergraduate during her father's presidential campaign. So I think parts of this footage illuminated um, moments in his campaign that she had not been present at. 
So I think for her, it was a very moving experience to take what she had heard about from her parents in frequent phone conversations and correspondence, what she had read about, and then to actually see it as it had unfolded in real time. Well, and also somebody like her brother, Abdul, who was who in the film says, I was very young. I, I mean, I knew my mom was out doing things. I knew it was about the country, but didn't have the context to understand it. So for someone like him, or for him, I should say, must have been quite, yeah, so, quite so, a so moving. There's, there's a moment in the film that's very moving and powerful when yeah. Hofstadt's youngest brother, who was seven at the time, his mother was assassinated, talks about his memory of the funeral and how at first he didn't understand why all these people were gathered outside his house when he was brought home from school in the yeah. middle of the day, and they were chanting, and then he realized they were chanting his mother's name, and it kind of slowly dawned upon him that something terrible had happened, but it took time for his mind to even be able to comprehend the possibility that she had been assassinated. Um, so you see... Also, in that moment, the absolute ruthless brutality of General Abacha, who had no qualms about sending you know, a team of assassins to kill a mother of seven children. It's powerful. Very powerful stuff. Okay. And there are scenes of Abacha with Gaddafi in the film as well, and you really get a sense of just you know, what a soulless person he was and what a ruthless person he was and what a power-hungry, greedy person he was. And I think Wale Shoenka, the Nobel Laureate, talks a lot about Abacha and kind of the incredible way in which Abacha targeted Abiola and really went after him. And um, so, so you see, you know, Wale Shoenka describing in depth what the Abacha regime was like. There is some wonderful footage. Um, again, for for people who just uh, kind of have the maybe the vaguest notion of where Nigeria is and it's and don't understand the importance of it, it is an important country. Uh, the United States gets a tremendous amount of oil from from Nigeria, as does the rest of the world. But it's certainly a big uh, exporter to to the uh, to the West, and its importance it, geopolitically is is very important. But also just the history in this part of the world, we're becoming more and more aware of what uh, is going on in in, in politics of Africa, um, in Nigeria during the I assume during uh, the post production of the Supreme Prize, those 250 uh, schoolgirls were kidnapped uh, by Boko Haram. Uh, obviously, uh, that's another part of this story, uh, and it goes speaks to the the issue of women, empowerment of women, the value of women in this society. Um, yes, the kidnapping of over 250 schoolgirls in northern Nigeria happened just weeks uh, before the film had its New York premiere at the Human Rights Watch Film Festival. And what that incident really illuminated was you know, the lack of accountability in terms of the government when it comes to protecting women and girls and providing you know, the most basic right of a, access to an education and physical safety in a school setting. So I think those two issues of the rights of women and girls and then the lack of the government's accountability when it comes to protecting women and girls were both put center stage uh, on the international media. Just going back to something that you were referring to before, the film includes interviews with two former U.S. ambassadors to mm -hmm. Nigeria, Walter Carrington and John Campbell. And Walter Carrington was appointed by Bill Clinton and went thinking that he would be the ambassador under President Abiola and was there when the military coup took place and when General Abacha seized power. 
so his assignment abruptly changed, yeah. and he talks firsthand about witnessing that transition and also about U.S. attitudes towards Nigeria during this time when Abiola went to the White House and tried to seek support from the State Department when it came to enforcing his free and fair election and the results of that election, only to sort of be told this is something that you know, you'll have to deal with independently. I would, you know, the U.S. is going to remain neutral. Walter Carrington talks in depth about that, and John Campbell also provides insight into the role of oil in terms of foreign policy towards Nigeria. It's, uh, again, there's a lot of lot of territory covered in the Supreme Prize, um, uh, macro and micro. You go from the geopolitical perspective all the way down to a mother and her and her kids, her desire and father as well, to, to provide for them a better Nigeria, a better place for all of them to grow up and flourish. I think oftentimes, more often than not, the fact that women have virtually no opportunity or access to an education is uh, is part of this culture or this structure that you're talking about that perpetuates. So the supreme this. the supreme price won the Gucci Tribeca Spotlighting Women Documentary Award. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So throughout the development of the film, we worked closely with Gucci and with the Tribeca Film Institute, mm-hmm. and Gucci launched a Chime for Change campaign for women's empowerment Mm -hmm. in 2012 at the TED conference. And they commissioned extended trailer of the Supreme Price to show at the TED conference. And so what they did was they commissioned my film and then a few other filmmakers as well to create these provocation films that then if people wanted to contribute to a cause, they could go to the Chime for Change website and look at a number of nonprofit organizations across the world dedicated to prevention of violence against women and to women's education and to women's empowerment and make a donation. And these organizations had all been researched by Gucci's foundation, the Caring Foundation, and approved. And that's one way of consolidating you know, resources across the globe and promoting this kind of solidarity that mm-hmm. we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. So you could be interested in a cause, but you might come from a country in Latin America and you might want to make your contribution there, but the issue might have come into your awareness through my film or through another film. And, you know, this platform of yeah. Time for Change offers that opportunity to choose geographically where you want to make your contribution and also to choose the precise cause and organization. Well, that, that's wonderful, and uh, people can get to all of that information either by going <clears throat> to uh, the website for your your website, uh, joannalipper.com, or also the thesupremeprice.com as well. Well, thank you. Uh, there is there's a whole lot more to cover, but there see this film. It, it's a wonderful uh, film about uh, a lot of different things, a history of Nigeria, pro-democracy movements, women, empowerment of women, very strong people involved, uh, family members, part of uh, a, a tradition of involvement in their in their societies. It, it's just a terrific film, and I'm so glad you were able to find some time to, to join us on Film School. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. 
Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 